Also, is it fair to say that 22 is a she? Like, how does gender work in this soul realm? It's a they. It's got to be, because... In the soul universe, gender is one of the things that comes with a body. She chooses, or they choose, they, they, she, it. 22 chooses to speak in a certain way. They don't really exist, right? They start as a blank slate that's some sort of spirit or soul that's then assigned personality traits and then sent down to earth. Intelligence. Is that a reference to, (laughs) to modern scripture? Hi there, this is Luke. On today's episode, we discuss music, animation, and theme in Disney Pixar's Soul. Welcome to Notes from the Silver Screen. Sadness. Mom and Dad, the team, they came to help because of sadness. A true act of goodwill, huh? Always sparks another, never fails. 그 아저씨한테도 물어봤었거든요. 왜 여기 들여다보냐고. 그랬더니. Hey, you remember what I said? Don't no, you go loving that baby too much. I don't love you, Earl. I haven't loved you for years. I want a divorce. <laughs> the demos, and I, you are a shit-hot piano player. You have an amazing voice, and I'm telling you, there is something special that happens when you sing our songs. You ready? Huh? To come live. I'm scared, Joe. I'm not good enough. Anyway, I I never got my spark. Yes, you did. Your spark isn't your purpose. That last box fills in when you're ready to come live. And the thing is, you're pretty great at jazzing. I loved it. I This one has kind of been under the radar for me. Like, I don't think I'd heard of it really before. You know, that was what we were going to do for the episode. I mean, they knocked it out of the park again. I was very taken with it. What did you guys like about the, the, the film? I think story, first and foremost, for me. Um, I thought they had like some subtlety in it. I felt like they never really stated, like, I guess the themes they were discussing. I think there's, like, some room for interpretation on what you take away from it because of that, which I think is, like, good, you know? It kind of broadens it, makes it a little more interesting. Because it seems to me like the theme was kind of like the philosophy of uh, Albert Camus, I guess. Especially since they talk about, like, how you have to have a spark, but there's not, you don't, it's not the same thing as a purpose, I guess. So, in a sense, there really is no purpose. I wonder if it came through in the montage. I remember there was like a montage with like the leaf falling down into into Joe's hand. Stuff like that. So like there's no purpose, but life is still beautiful and you can enjoy it kind of a thing. Yeah. What did you think about that? Uh, what Logan said, Luke? Yeah. I mean, we talked about it a little when we finished the film. I, I have essentially the same takeaway. I didn't take it to the perhaps logical conclusion of existentialism, but it's definitely a more nuanced take than a lot of animated or or children films, but I feel like it's a pretty clearly stated thesis or theme to the film that life's not about the singular purpose that drives you and everything you do. 
but it's about finding joy in the little moments. It's about jazzing, enjoying the little things and letting life take you where it may. There's the scene right after he performs with the jazz quartet and he's out there on the, the sidewalk and the the main singer, I don't remember her name. Dorothea. Says, yeah, Dorothea, Dorothea comes lives. out and she has the little parable about the, the fish swimming in the ocean. Well, I want to find the ocean. You're in the ocean. This isn't the ocean. This is just water. I felt like that was a was a perfect little parable to sum up the theme of the, the film. And it made me think of, um, there's a famous speech by uh, American author David Foster Wallace. I think it was a either commencement or graduation speech from a university. But he talks about essentially the same parable or that same allegory of a fish in water. The fact that since we're constantly immersed in life, we can kind it kind of we become blind to it. His was more about like making choices and being aware of what your conscious default was. So if you're like waiting in line at a grocery store, your default is going to be to be upset because you have to wait in line. Whereas you can make the conscious decision to think about the other people who are in line or to, I guess, find a more positive spin on stuff. I agree with what you said, Logan, that that was definitely a point of the film that maybe life doesn't have the meanings we think it does but it's still enjoyable and I do think there's depth there I also agree Logan that you know you said there are multiple takeaways and it was the story was expressed in a way that you could interpret things differently did you guys think at some point that it maybe wasn't as clear as it could have been and is that a flaw in the film Speaking of the themes that were being expressed. I don't know. Me personally, I felt like it was it was pretty clear cut what the film was about. You said that, right? I guess it is a little strange. I mean, it's something we, we were talking about Peter Doctor, right? Pete Doctor. Pete Doctor, yeah. And um, Pete his, the director. Oh. And I feel like a lot of his works, and I guess it's kind of become the the Pixar brand, is these family films that explore some deeper human element. But I feel like, especially with this one, because they're they're covering like these these grand like eternal questions of of the human soul, like what what's before life, what's after life, and it is in a cartoonish way, but really tackling per the purpose of life is a pretty adult theme. I I'm still not sure if I would have done the, the balance the same way between, you know, having like jokes and uh, cartoonish animation style and you get to see the, the before. It's also like this very stylized version of New York and all of that to kind of balance out, to keep the children engaged while also offering, having something to say. I, th I feel like the balance as it is works. The, the, there is still mm. is a message to the film. I would assume that children would enjoy it because it is so vibrant. It's fairly humorous. Yeah, I got some good laughs out of it. I thought it was pretty funny. I did too. Yeah, I'm with you, Logan. I, I thought the same thing. What were some of your, your favorite jokes? Because there were jokes and gaffes and... And things like that. 
Oh man, I I don't know that I can remember like any little gaff in particular. What were some? Do you yeah, remember any? Like the the one written joke that I can think of is uh, just twenty two slapping Joe because he has no <laughs> sense of touch. But to me, the best gag was probably when Joe falls. Okay, when Joe falls. Because he narrowly avoids death or grave injury four or five times. And he does that last spin by the bicycle. That was close. And then just that cartoon fall into the sewer and into the after. I feel like that was a a well-executed visual joke. Yeah, I remember there was some humor with him inside of the cat at the apartment trying to get Joe's body while his body inhabited by a 22 soul to get dressed and things. But then she starts to communicate with one of his students who we had seen in the intro scene. And so I remember that being kind of in a humorous situation for, for Joe to be frustrated and, and her to sort of with her nihilism be like, you're right. There's no point to anything in band. And I like this Connie girl and yeah, walking out there with the pizza stained. That scene I thought was funny. Oh, another character. I just thought of this that I enjoyed uh, was Terry. I thought she was really funny personally. And that's the, she was voiced by the same actress who played the correctional officer in Hunt for the Wilder People. Yeah. If you guys remember that film, I recognized her voice right away. And I love the Maori accent. And uh, I just thought she was funny. I don't know why. I, I, I don't really know why. But what did you guys think of Terry? Yeah, I, th- I thought it was funny. It was a good character. I didn't recognize it until I, I looked it up on IMDb. Well, yeah, I, I thought it was just, she was a good villain for the film because the film, you know, she was a good antagonist, a looming threat, but it was totally appropriate for the film. And I guess what I'm trying to say is she wasn't that scary, right? She wasn't like yeah. a violent threat, but she was like a soft threat or like a gentle threat to use a phrase from the pianist Chili Gonzalez. That's a reference. I don't know if you guys <laughs> know, but he's got a song called Gentle Threat. I'm pretty sure. Anyway. Yeah. And then she could, you know. Control dimensions and she accidentally killed a guy. Yeah. I just, I don't know why this is making me chuckle, but then she accidentally straight up murders a man, but then resurrects him promptly and apologizes and says, yeah, it's not your time yet, but it might be soon if you keep eating those processed foods. And it's just, I thought that whole scene was, it was funny, but also uncomfortable because she just killed someone. And I, I liked, I, I liked feeling that during the film. I, I agree with you that Terry was was very good at that function of of providing a sense of stakes and that idea yeah. of a ticking clock. Yes. I guess we we already have that built into the the narrow timeline to get the the body the souls switched back in time for the performance. But just having someone mm. chasing them kind of adds another dimension. But I also felt the structure was a little awkward. Because we have Terry, you know, doing the count. And then, like, as soon as Terry finds out who it was, she's located Joe in 22. And then she does the, the accidental trapping of uh, David Diggs' character. And then essentially disappears for, like, a good 30 minutes. And then comes back after they've talked to the mom and uh, are back at the show and all that. I, I would have preferred, I guess, pacing that out differently. But I, I don't know. I didn't even notice like anything like that. Well, these are the good 
these are the good takes that you bring, Luke, because it's interesting. You're right. That was uh, it was almost redundant, or would you say it was redundant? Because you said it was another layer, but it, she was serving a similar function to the the pressure of time for the performance. I I almost feel like I don't know, like the the pressure of getting there on time for the performance. It was. It didn't feel that that intense because they. I mean, he was able to es- die, <clears throat> escape from the hospital. You know, and do all these things leading up to have a have a heart to heart with one of his music students. Like, I almost forget that he's trying to. I know that there are so many cues in the film, but you know what I'm trying to say is yeah. I didn't feel that tension really. That oh my gosh, we got to get there before seven. Like they didn't seem, or I didn't, I didn't feel anxious about him arriving at the performance on time uh, during the film. Yeah, I do feel like um, Terry pursuing is a much better ticking clock because. Like having someone in pursuit, I think in every situation would work better than having a time constraint. I have to be at some place at some time, otherwise mm. something won't happen. Just because the, the latter is a lot more abstract and so it feels less urgent. Something I didn't experience personally, but the day after we watched it, some of my family was watching it. Like my grandmother and and my mom and my dad, they didn't really engage with it. And I feel like reading some reviews online, people had a hard time engaging with Joe as a character. I I think the reason is he's essentially one dimensional, which is the whole like point of the plot is he needs to realize that failure of him as a person being so focused on jazz but it also kind of alienates him from the audience in that, okay, he's just this guy with these crazy pipe dreams. And, you know, he, he's so obsessed with, with being a famous jazz artist that it can make it a little hard to relate to him. And I think that might be why we don't have that sense of urgency to get to that, to get to the venue on time yeah. to play because we should, but, Maybe we don't really care all that much that he gets to play with Dorothea. No, you're you're right. I agree that. Wow. Yeah, that point is well made. I think that makes sense. We already know that based off of what's happening in the film. Like, no, Joe, you're you're overly anxious. Maybe we aren't articulating this, but we're thinking you're overly anxious and overly fixated on a particular goal. Whereas we're already seeing all these signs and and 22 is already sort of showing him different flaws and deficits that he has all leading up to them arriving on time to to perform toward Theo Williams. Is, am I following what, what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think you're right. And Logan, I like to know your thoughts on that with the barber, you know, and, and 22 starts to show a different side of Joe, albeit it's not really Joe, but, but other people, or seeing him say things that he doesn't normally say and asking about the barber in particular or talking about the barber's life in a personal way. And the barber really appreciates that. So we see all that substance and we, we appreciate that as a viewer, but he still hasn't corrected himself. And you're right. I think that's sort of the point of the film. He's like one dimensional and to learn that second dimension to, to add a layer of complexity and, and to stop fixating on his goal, it takes the whole film. So I think you're right that that might alienate an audience. But uh, yeah, Logan, I'd like to know your thoughts. And then I had another thought about 
about that? I, I didn't really think about it because I, I thought the film was engaging, but I can't really see the, him, you know, being one dimensional. And I guess just kind of like Josh said, you know, I don't want to repeat too much, but I think a lot of the other characters, I guess, in a sense, make up for that because they, you know, explore these ideas of living. I guess it's kind of natural to see Joe as the protagonist, but 22 is there throughout the, the whole film as well. I wonder if maybe she isn't more the main protagonist, right? And I feel like she definitely has more um, dimensionality to her, you know, a more some more flesh. She's not obsessed over one thing. She's just l learning all these different things about what it means to be alive. Let's see. I also wanted to discuss the idea of urgency again, because I wonder, I think it's good how they did it. I don't know that you, there needs to be a sense of anxiety. I think it just provides a little structure for you to hang your story off of, right? There doesn't mm. need to be like a ticking time bomb that you're stressed out about. It just, it's, it's the bones of the story. And, and because the thesis really is, you know, what is the meaning of life, I guess, in a sense, or how do you engage with life? And I think that yeah. objective is met in how they present it. So as far as having stakes in a sense, that's just kind of secondary to me, I guess. I love that. I also love how you guys are different. And this was something that's also repeated in other episodes. You guys provide good contrasts. And there's lots of good contrasts in the film, too, from the real lively and gritty New York City uh, landscape that we see or cityscape. And then the ethereal or ephemeral, I don't even know the right words, airy, you know, cartoonish soul realm. And I agree with you, Logan, that 22 is a, a main protagonist. Maybe she's not... Like, I still would say Joe is the main protagonist, but she is, you know, 1B if, if he's 1A in the story. And Luke, I'd like to know your thoughts on that, you know, because it seems like a dual protagonist situation going on. So my take on it is from a story standpoint, Joe is the protagonist um, because the, the main action of the story is focused on him. And I mean, even we open with him and, and we end with him. It's very much his story. But having the the parallel storylines of Joe and 22, I think makes up for a lot of the weaknesses in Joe's character because 22 is a more compelling character. I feel like it would be easier to relate to the struggle of trying to find what you're supposed to do. Like what's, what's your purpose? What do you enjoy? What do you like? What are you destined for? I feel like that's much more relatable than, Oh, I have to become a great jazz pianist. A potential reason why the story is structured around Joe is because it's easier to follow a story about this 30, 40 year old man from New York than it is to follow a half formed spirit from the great before that is trying to find a spark for life to get an earth pass to come to earth. I feel like even though 22 is a more well-rounded character, it, it, again, it's that idea where we have these two worlds. We have the, 
world of New York and Joe's life. And then we have this abstract world of souls and spirits and finding purpose. I don't know. I, I think as an audience, we need that bridge of, of Joe dying to kind of explain everything else that's happening. Cause we do have to have a lot of exposition to get there. I mean, that's a, a classic almost trope essentially is having a, a new guy on the team. Whenever you have a story that has ex, a lot of exposition, you, the easiest way to get around it is some new guy shows up. And so we have to show him the ropes and then, you know, it is Pixar. So they obviously have a, a fun, engaging spin on it. So, you know, the kids don't get bored and the adults don't get bored with this heavy exposition. Oh, this is the great after this is the great before by having, you know, the Jerry's and they, they have their own unique spin on what is the afterlife, but then also just the concept of Jerry's and the way they speak and the way they interact with each other. And with Joe, it all has kind of a humorous undertone. There's a lot of, jokes just about the absurdity of the situation if we we take the whole soul realm at face value then the joke becomes about the inefficiencies of a bureaucracy and how joe is able to just kind of go wherever he wants just because these these all-powerful beings of the fundamental forces of the universe just kind of accept whatever he says and lose track of him. <laughs> I thought about that too, after watching the movie, reading a few reviews and I'll say this, most of the reviews that I read were positive and, and my feelings about the film are, are still overwhelmingly positive, but no film is, you know, beyond reproach. And, and I thought that was interesting too. Why was it so easy to dupe these Terry's and Jerry. I almost thought at the end or thinking after the film, I almost thought in my head, like, were they duped or were they just, or were they just playing along? And I guess that's my own projection. That's my own. It's not, that's not implied or clearly expressed at all in the film. So I'm acknowledging there is that potential deficit or, or like you were saying, Luke, that flaw of, of the, you know, it being the. Okay. Maybe in the, the definition sense, it is a flaw, but I don't think it detracts from the film. Right. Yeah, I think, I think I, well, I agree, <laughs> but, but it's, it's definitely there. And w once I realized that I couldn't sort of forget about it. One thing I wanted to talk about that I feel we, we've kind of broached this subject of, of the two worlds. So that's kind of a good segue. I wanted to talk about the art style and also just the, I guess the tone, the general tone of the film because I feel like the art direction and also the music plays a big part in differentiating these two worlds. So we have Joe's mm. world of, of New York, and then we have the the great before is is the main secondary set piece. So I guess, what, what do you guys think about the animation style? Did you like it? So, yeah, I'm glad we talked about this. Well, I, I remember watching the film and... And as soon as he entered the the afterlife, I don't know, what's it called? The great after, yeah. great beyond. I remember like, uh, I guess being struck by its minimalism and I don't really know what my reaction to it was, you know, in particular, but I remember standing out and like wondering to myself, like, is this, 
how the movie is going to be for the rest of the film. Like it's going to be like this, you know, very minimalistic, a lot of black, a lot of like, even if you look at the character design for Terry, they're like kind of two dimensional creatures, like physically. Right. When you compare it to the real world, it seems like there's a lot more detail, a lot more to it. Right. And obviously the film wasn't like that. I think most of it took place in the real world. Um, but yeah, I, that definitely stood out to me how they had kind of like a very minimalistic, lots of darks, lots of simple lines, lot, you know, monochromatic, I, even I guess with the spirits um, and then compared to the real world, it's very different. Uh, well, I remember watching in a few of the extras about the animation style and the music and you're right, it was both the music and the visuals that were starkly different. Though there were things in the score that in the astral world and in the great before that hinted at Joe Gardner and the reality that was also a part of the film. So, for example, there there were bits of piano, not just electronic music. It was there were also if maybe I'm wrong and this could be just an utter falsehood, but I'm pretty sure we, we hear parts of piano playing at different points in the astral world, which kind of pull you back to, if I'm not mistaken, you know, pulls you back to who we're following, which is a jazz pianist. And then on the flip side, it is a much more up-tempo, although there are ballads on the piano, uh, but it's a much more acoustic sounding score or soundtrack in New York. And there is more detail. I think Logan, that's what you said, right? Like there's just more detailed in, in our, in reality. Whereas in the spiritual realm that we also frequent in the film, it's less defined. And in one of those extras that I watched today, they, they intentionally drew it that way. They, they, things were edgeless. So they, there weren't very many hard lines. It was more outlines. Uh, and, and then it blurs at the edges. So everything's kind of looks airy and like you can walk right through it and they don't even have like they're not standing on solid ground at any point in time. It's they drew just a s small little bit of re of a reflection of the f of their feet. So you know they're on gr the ground because there's the reflection of them underneath them. But there is no like solid ground that they're walking on the whole. So you get the point. That worked for me too. I I wonder if the reason why they did that is because they're trying to also tell a story about a guy who needs another dimension to him. Like we're, we're talking about how he was so single-minded, hyper-focused and overly fixated on his ambitions or his dream specifically to become a professional jazz musician. And so him venturing into this spiritual realm was a way for him to unlock uh, his potential on earth and, and, you know, and, and that potential realized is, well, him having a multifaceted, multi-layered, multi-dimensional character himself. And so I, I, I feel like that, that worked for me that, you know, I like that. And I also feel like I have very specific beliefs regarding spiritual realms myself. And so it was interesting for me to watch and compare that to what I feel like I know or what I believe in. So I, I enjoyed that. And my initial thoughts with the Terry's and with this great before, which turns out to be a very gentle or benign feeling mostly, 
uh, in the film, but my initial feeling, I didn't, I didn't really like it. I, cause it was so cartoonish, like a PlayStation game or like a PlayStation opening menu, <laughs> you know, just like the lights and the colors and, but you know, I, and, and then the shape of the, the Jerry's, I didn't love that. And they looked like Picasso characters. Uh, and at first I didn't, I didn't really love it, but, but you know, I, I, I'm convinced now that it's not, it's not as bad as I might've thought, which I don't even know that I'd call it bad, but I just did. Yeah. I didn't love it at first. So I just want to chime in. Cause I, I remember the boat standing out as well. The giant ship they rode around in, it seemed kind of once you took a second look at it, maybe there was a little more detail, but at first blush, it seemed kind of just like, um, just like the model of the ship. Like it hadn't been painted at all. Yeah. It wasn't rendered totally. The artist just like stopped. <laughs> And then they use like, like in Microsoft paint, you know, where you have like a circle and then you, you use the paint bucket to fill it in. It's like, they just filled it in with neon, the, the, the ship. But I liked that, that guy. I thought it was kind of funny. That was a funny joke with her. He was, he was in a meditative state spinning his, <laughs> <laughs> his sign on a street corner in New York. I wanted to ask, I guess, cause I don't really have an answer, but I wonder how the approach is different in an animated film versus an actual film. Right. Cause I feel like in a lot of ways it's going to be different just because of the medium. You know, I wonder what's the same, what's different. I hope that it's more freeing and that's just my quick, quick uh, thought. I, I hope that in cartoons, it's like you can go places where you wouldn't go maybe. Although you can convey that same exact story. It's just going to look a little differently. So I don't really know that there's much difference at all. What are your thoughts on, on that, Luke? I feel like one of the, the the question there was about like workflow, which is, I don't know if that's a conversation oh, okay, we want to yeah. get too deep into, but one of the thoughts I had was when Joe first gets to the, the jazz bar, wherever it is, where Dorothy is going to audition him, I did notice some very striking framing with, you know, Dorothy is up there performing on stage and she has this really um high key backlight and it made me stop and i'm like that that's kind of uh it's like the secret power of animation that you don't really notice or think about is you're not bound by the constraints of a physical world because you create everything by hand and so there's like in the real world, if you're filming something with a camera, you're moving through 3D space, there's there's certain constraints. You know, mm. if if a feature or if there's a crowd or, or something, there may be angles or, or lighting or or shots that you can't physically capture. Whereas with animation, you you create everything around you. So you create an image from scratch. And that provides the artist the opportunity to create exactly what they envision, which hmm. I think is is kind of cool. That that's an interesting thing to think about. That everything we see for every second, every part of every frame was hand drawn essentially. I mean, yeah. nowadays we're using 3D animation software and I'm sure they have models. I'm not sure on the exact workflow of this, but you know, even in um stuff like into the Spider-Verse, like it's a 3D animated film, or I guess um, Arthur Christmas is a better example. It's a 3D animated film that has a 2D shader to make it look hand-drawn, but everything's done in 3D animation because it's an easier workflow. But you're able, hmm. like each image 
it doesn't change when you get to location. You get to create what you see in the storyboard. Then talking about that difference between animation and, and film, the, the same scene as it evolves, we get Joe playing piano and he enters the zone. And I felt like that again shows the strength of animation is not only as far as lighting and shooting in a 3D space, you avoid those limits in animation. It also provides a certain freeing element. The reason we're able to, to so easily understand these abstract concepts, concepts of an afterworld and you know souls and earth passes and all of this is because you can have this drastically different art style and it isn't jarring. I, I really like that depiction of what it feels like, what it looks like, what the sensation is of getting into the zone when Joe plays. And I feel like that's something that, though, like you said, you can do everything that was done in the film in real life. It It's different. In a different way. The, the only yep. kind of parallel that I can draw would be Rocket Man, the biopic of... Elton John, I think probably the the most famous scene from there is he's playing on stage and he begins to play Rocket Man and he flies up and he's hovering above the piano playing and all of the audience starts to hover as well. Well, that, that film is, is kind of, it, it's very imaginative because it's all about capturing the feeling of being Elton John, of, of living in his music. But I don't know. It's it's like that that different thing. How do you capture this this abstract idea? How do you present it to an audience? That w that was a really strong point. I I really was able to to kind of grasp a lot of what they were going for just through that art style and through the choices they made to to show these concepts. Mm. I think of the animator who guest starred on Corridor Crew. I guess it would be who animated in Frozen. Um, it's really interesting because I don't really know much about it, but you know, they have those like 12 rules or whatever for animation for, for Disney, you know, I guess they have like typically like an army, I would assume of animators and they each have like, okay, you're going to do this scene. So they spend, you know, all this time on something that's going to be, you know, like 10 seconds or whatever of, of the movie. Um, so it just seems like it's something that's very thoughtful. Um, and even, you know, looking at motion and, and what they're trying to convey in an emotional sensor, I guess, how, how you in, interact with it. And I also think talking about the versatility of it, it works really well for the montage that was in there, showing different moments throughout Joe's life, kind of in a flashback montage. Because, um, you know, with a montage, you know, that's kind of what you're going for. And, and sky's the limits as to what you can put in there, what you want to convey. I thought during that montage scene that you've mentioned uh, before, Logan, uh, when there was the spinning of the leaf, which I remember being like a kid and seeing that and, you know, you like, you peel it apart. It's got some like sticky sap and you can put it on your nose. And I remember doing that with like, it was me and my brother and my grandma would take us to like a chapel on a corner, you know, somewhere near our neighborhood growing up and the trees there would have all those leaves. So anyway, that was a, a, a good scene, an evocative scene. Um, and then it comes back in the montage. I was also thinking during that scene when 22 is in Joe's body and she's just kind of taking everything in and is being meditative and, or contemplative and just looking at things. It sort of reminded me of the 
the plastic bag in that one movie, American, what's it called? American Beauty or something like that, where there's like a plastic bag floating in the wind. What scene is that or what movie is that? Do you know what I'm talking I, I'm about? I'm pretty sure that's the opening to American Beauty, but I, I've never seen it. Okay, yeah. So American Beauty. And then it's actually, it's in the opening, but it's it comes back like, two times if if it's in the opening it's in that movie like three times so they they really went in on that like visual <clears throat> excuse me and i think that yeah they they really went in on that visual in american beauty and it just reminded me of that yeah the contemplativeness i guess of it and and then drawing some type of parallel to or philosophy from that for your life but that montage where he's at the beach and seeing fireworks and everything, I, I thought that was wonderful and it really expressed a point of the film that he was at that moment learning finally, which was to just enjoy life for what it is and to not look past it and always looking ahead and instead sort of soak in all of his happy memories and him playing for his dad when his dad was older uh, on his piano, that same piano that they're sitting at, you know, it was, just, it was really good emotional scene to me or effective scene. John Baptiste, the guy who is playing much of the jazz music and the piano that we're seeing, actually they use, the animators use a lot of his hands recording that. There was a tweet that he put out where he just captioned it by saying my hands and then it shows, it's like almost like an ad spot uh, of scenes from the film. I just thought it'd be good to mention him and, and uh, you know, because he was a very integral part of the character. It's almost like Joe Gardner is as much John Baptiste as it is Jamie Foxx, who's who's acting, doing the voiceover, so or doing the voice acting. So I just thought it'd be good to mention him. I I'm new to his music, and this this world is obviously new to me, uh, just in general. I'm not familiar with jazz, and I was able to watch him on NPR perform about 15 or 16 minutes. Uh, John Baptiste. Uh, it was recorded earlier this year, so not connected really to to soul. It wasn't like a promotion for soul or anything, but it was fabulous. And his performance was, was entertaining. So if you guys have 16, 17 minutes at some point today, I recommend just watching that whole thing. And I, I found it entertaining and, and yeah, so that's probably my last, my last thought is just to, to talk about John Baptiste, who really did, I think, add wonderfully to the, to the film and to the character of Joe Gardner. Yeah. I, I love that as well. I, I think I might've seen the the same like clip from the interview um he just talks about you know seeing his hands there on screen the other thing i wanted to talk about as far as music which i feel like we probably don't give enough respect on the podcast i'm not very musically inclined but so jean baptiste he wrote all of the the jazz music that appears and i feel like jazz is is mainly the the musical language of the Joe part of the film. But then you have um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did like the, the soundtrack. So they, they were mostly in charge of the, the soul realm and listening to yeah. them talk. It was kind of interesting that like, essentially they, they were working separate, right? Like um, Atticus and Trent are in charge of, of composing music to represent the soul realm and then john bautiste he's he's making the jazz music that kind of grounds the the real world but i think it was trent who said even though we were 
we weren't working together. We we did communicate and we did have some time to kind of merge ideas, but the music plays they're obviously very distinct and they have different sounds and, and different emotions. They move, but they don't feel disjointed. There there's some sense of unity throughout. Um and I guess that is kind of what you were talking about with throughout the the soul realm, we we still have this um musical I guess like callback to to this jazz music. We, like we can hear like yeah. some some piano, some jazz piano playing. Hopefully that was true. That because I definitely said that. Well, even if it isn't, that that's the feeling that you got. So something was working <laughs> r- properly. Yeah, and that dichotomy. We've talked about this a few times now, but that dichotomy between the sound and the the visual element the colors and, and things in the soul realm versus what you see and feel and hear in, in the, the, in New York city, that dichotomy is strong and it, it worked. I think I, I'm not sure. Uh, there was another dichotomy that Kemp powers who is credited as a co-director and writer. Uh, one of the three write, uh, writers that are credited on the film as well. He, he talked about another dichotomy that's at play. So we've talked about the musical one with the more electronic and, you know, I can just keep reusing this word, but ethereal, I don't even really know what that word means. Okay. But I just hear other people say it. And I think that they're describing that distinction. Uh, so the music, there's that dichotomy with jazz and with the Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, Atticus Ross led score. But Kim Powers illustrated, I thought another dichotomy, which we've also sort of talked about. Well, we haven't talked about this, but we've talked about these two characters. There's that strong dichotomy between Joe Gardner and 22, because one is a soul who doesn't want to die. And the other is a soul that has never wanted to live. So that's another thing at play. And I think we could probably just talk more another time about dichotomies or contrasts in films. I was reminded of uh, the um, letters. Wait, what's it called? From the screenplay? What's the lessons? What from am I thinking the, of? Lessons. Lessons from the, lessons lessons from the, from the some the something. Yeah, <laughs> they talked about uh, in one of their episodes about an antagonist, uh, and and how that's that's sort of the the ultimate function of an antagonist. It should be to draw out the the primary character's weaknesses. Um, so anyway, that's just another thought that I had. Shouts out to Kim Powers and John Baptiste and dichotomies. Just wrap it up. Um, Soul's a, a really, I, I think it's a charming film. I, I'm not 100% sold on on the art style, especially in, in New York. I, I wasn't a fan of oh, the really? shading. And I, just something about like the texturing was off-putting, especially with the skins of the people. But I I felt something like that too. I think um, I feel like as long as you can overcome that hurdle that we talked about with you know having to relate to Joe to get into the story, as long as you can get into the story, I feel like it's a really important message and it has some very cool themes mm-hmm. expe- exploring the purpose of life and and living your passions, but also just appreciating the world and and life and the little moments. This is water. Right. Well said. Thank you so much for listening to Notes from the Silver Screen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, and know someone else who might, please share it. 
As always, we'll be back right here in a couple of weeks with a new episode.